Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, December 9th and Sunday, December 10th, 2023. Uh, we have a couple of anniversaries. On December 9th, uh, 1824, the armies of Peru and Gran Colombia defeated a Spanish royalist army at the Battle of Ayacucho, which is considered one of the last major engagements of the Latin American Wars of Independence. The Peruvian-Colombian victory ensured Peru's independence and cleared the way for the Peruvian commander, uh, General Antonio José de Sucre, to enter Upper Peru, or modern-day Bolivia, and campaign there. On December 9th, 1987, this is the date of the start of the first intifada in the Palestinian-occupied territories. Uh, the proximate cause was a truck crash, an uh, Israeli military truck crashed into a line of cars that was stuck uh, at the Erez checkpoint, which goes between runs between Israel and Gaza, killing four people. Uh, this sparked a rumor that this was an intentional attack. Uh, it was probably an accident, but of course, uh, the tensions there ran much deeper than just a single traffic incident. And uh, you know, the background there, I'm sure, is uh, is fairly well known to all of you. The first Intifada, unlike the second Intifada, which was much more overtly violent, is remembered as being. Uh, relatively nonviolent, not entirely, but relatively nonviolent. And it is the uh, answer that uh, people often give when you have uh, some presumably well-meaning person say, uh, you know, why haven't the Palestinians ever tried nonviolent resistance? The answer comes back that they did in the first intifada, and it didn't work. Uh, what it did do was raise a lot of international attention to the Palestinian struggle and probably put uh, the Israelis and the Palestine Liberation Organization on the road toward the Oslo Accords to the extent that that did anything, which it really didn't. Uh, nevertheless, that's sort of the uh, the legacy uh, of the first intifada was was it didn't change substantively the occupation, uh, but it did draw a lot more international attention to it. Uh, on December 10th, 1877, a Russian army defeated uh, the Ottoman garrison and captured the city of Plevna, which is in modern-day Bulgaria. Uh, this was uh, part of the uh, part of one of many Russian-Ottoman wars that took place uh, in the 19th century. This one was sort of the uh, rematch of the Crimean War, in a sense. The Russians were looking to get some uh, territory back that they had lost. Uh, the Battle of Plevna is an Ottoman defeat in the sense that the Russian army did eventually capture uh, the city, and it was a fairly important city. But uh, it is, uh, in some ways, a strategic victory in that the Ottoman garrison, which was pretty badly outmanned and outgunned, held off the Russians for so long that they uh, basically stymied a Russian campaign that was meant potentially to go all the way to Constantinople. So uh, it may have pre preserved the empire. Now, obviously, the empire didn't survive uh, that much longer, another 40 years, I guess. But uh, it, this may have preserved the empire for that period of time, because it's, it's possible that had the Russians taken Plevna quickly, they would have continued on and who knows what might have happened. So it, uh, it does have some uh, role in, in the uh, preservation, I guess I say, of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, also on December 10th, 1898, the Treaty of Paris ended the Spanish-American War. Under its terms, Spain agreed to give up its claims on Cuba, which became a U.S. protectorate, and they all lived happily ever after. Also turned Guam, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico over to the United States, and they all lived happily ever after as well. It is often considered the end of the Spanish Empire, although Spain did still hold some colonies, so that's not really accurate. Uh, and it's also considered the first emergence of the United States as a major world power 
which would obviously manifest itself for better or worse uh, in the 20th century. Uh, on to the news. Uh, this will no doubt come as a shock, but the International Energy Agency reported over the weekend that even if the participants in the United Nations COP28 Climate Summit fulfilled all of the pledges they've made at this year's shindig, it would only get humanity about a third of the way toward the carbon emissions reductions needed to salvage the Paris Climate Agreement's 1.5 degrees Celsius warming threshold. And since there's no realistic chance that they'll fulfill all of those pledges or even most of them, uh, I guess that doesn't leave us in a very good place. Summit attendees, if you're uh, wondering, are still locked in a heated dispute over whether to insert unenforceable language about a fossil fuel phase down into their final statement, or whether to just have that statement be like a drawing of a giant raised middle finger uh, instead, as it would be if they left out fossil fuels altogether. Uh, on to the Middle East. We start in Israel-Palestine, where heavy fighting continued throughout Gaza over the weekend, with the most intense activity still focused on Khan Yunus, as the Israeli military, or IDF, reportedly pressed its offensive there as far as the city's primary north-south thoroughfare. Authorities in Gaza said that some 300 people had been killed between Saturday and Sunday, taking the official death toll to more than 18,000 since the October 7th attacks, although the true count is likely higher. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reiterated a demand for Hamas's surrender on Sunday, while the militant group warned that the remaining Israeli hostages in its custody will die absent a negotiated settlement to this conflict. So, in other words, there doesn't appear to be much diplomacy happening at the moment, at least not in public. Uh, the United Nations estimated over the weekend that half of Gaza's population is now facing severe levels of hunger. Virtually the entire population is struggling to find enough to eat amid shortages and high prices. And as we've mentioned here again and again, the level of humanitarian relief is nowhere near adequate to the need. Uh, at the risk of repeating myself, this conflict is approaching a point where indirect casualties from hunger, illness, etc. are going to match or even surpass casualties directly caused by the fighting. Under these conditions, and given the level of material destruction the IDF has wrought in Gaza, it perhaps comes as no surprise that, according to ABC News, many of the territory's residents seem ready to leave permanently, which may be the point. Uh, the Jordanian government and the director of the UN Relief and Works Agency both accused the Israeli government over the weekend of trying to push Gazan civilians out of the territory altogether. Whether or not that's fair, I don't think there's any question that Israeli officials wouldn't be sad to see Gazans leave, uh, especially if it happened in a way that, no matter how absurdly, could be spun as, quote-unquote, voluntary. Uh, elsewhere, the Biden administration on Friday exercised its option to expedite the sale of some 14,000 tank shells to Israel without congressional oversight. This was purely an expedience issue. The U.S. Congress is not going to block any arms sale to Israel, but the Biden administration doesn't want to isolate Israeli military aid from the Ukrainian military aid. It's also trying to get through the legislature. It's probably worth noting that the administration is refusing to assess whether the IDF is using U.S. weapons in compliance with international law while claiming that it is unable to do so, which is frankly absurd. The administration has decided to rely on the assurance of Israeli officials that everything they're doing is on the up and up, which sounds very simple and believable. Uh, Israeli forces killed at least two Palestinians, both teenagers, in several raids across the West Bank over the weekend. The Israelis also detained a number of people, some of whom, according to Al Jazeera, reported being physically mistreated while in custody. Uh, and the U.N. General Assembly will probably vote to call for a ceasefire in Gaza on Tuesday. I hesitate to make too much of this because everything the U.N. General Assembly does is by definition symbolic. But the vote will likely reinforce the impression that its ironclad support for Israel has isolated the U.S. internationally. 
Uh, in Syria, Islamic State fighters reportedly were behind an attack on a military outpost in the eastern part of that country on Friday that killed at least seven pro-regime fighters, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights. Also on Saturday, the SOHR, uh, or on Saturday, rather, the SOHR reported that the Syrian military killed at least six people and wounded 25 more in a missile strike on rebel-controlled parts of Idlib province. That strike came two days after a rebel attack in neighboring Aleppo province killed at least 11 pro-government fighters, along with at least five of the attackers. In Yemen, a French frigate reportedly came under attack in the Red Sea late Saturday by drones that appear to have been launched from northern Yemen. It shot down both projectiles. There's been no claim of responsibility, but it is probably safe to assume that the Houthis were behind it. On Saturday, the rebels issued a statement warning that, quote, if Gaza does not receive the food and medicines it needs, all ships in the Red Sea bound for Israeli ports, regardless of their nationality, will become a target for our armed forces, end quote, threatening to escalate an already tense situation. The Israeli government is threatening to take unilateral action against the Houthis unless the U.S. and company do something to curtail the group's attacks on Red Sea shipping. In Lebanon, Sunday apparently saw a higher-than-usual volume of attacks along the Israeli-Lebanese border, but no fatalities as far as I can tell. Amid the activity, an apparent Hezbollah drone strike wounded several Israeli soldiers, prompting the IDF to retaliate with airstrikes. Uh, including one that wounded at least five people in the village of Aitarun. In Egypt, uh, voting in that country's presidential election opened on Sunday. Uh, it will end on either on Tuesday or whenever President Abdel Fattah Sisi decides to end it. And Sisi will win with probably over 95% of the vote unless he feels the need to pretend like this was a real contest. Turnout might be interesting to watch in as much as it could demonstrate the level of public support for Sisi's reign. Uh, his 2014 victory featured turnout in the high 40s, uh, but his 2018 win saw that decline to the low 40s. Uh, there is, of course, no reason to believe any turnout figure the Egyptian government provides. On to Asia and Afghanistan. The UN's refugee agency sounded the proverbial alarm bell on Friday with respect to the hundreds of thousands of Afghans who have been deported from Pakistan over the past couple of months. Uh, most of them have returned to Afghanistan with little or nothing and are living in what are effectively ramshackle refugee camps in their home country. The agency says that many of them, quote, could lose their lives, end quote, over the, over the winter unless the Afghan government or somebody builds appropriate accommodations for them or provides them with some sort of basic monetary assistance. Some of the returnees had never even lived in Afghanistan, having been born to Afghan parents uh, in Pakistan, or Afghan migrants, I should say, in Pakistan. Uh, so now they're struggling to find jobs, places to live, uh, etc., in a country that they've never been in before. In the Philippines, Philippine and Chinese vessels spent the weekend in another tense standoff in the disputed Spratly Islands region. The most significant incident took place on Sunday when a Chinese and Philippine vessel collided with one another near the Second Thomas Shoal, with each side unsurprisingly accusing the other of having caused it. There were no casualties in the incident as far as I know. Prior to the collision, Philippine officials had been accusing the Chinese Coast Guard of firing water cannons at Philippine ships attempting to resupply the country's makeshift naval base in the Shoal. On Saturday, Philippine officials say that a Chinese vessel fired water cannons at Philippine fisheries boats near the similarly disputed Scarborough Shoal. In Japan, on a similar note, uh, Chinese and Japanese vessels had themselves a standoff near the disputed Senkaku or Daoyu 
uh, islands in the East China Sea on Sunday. Each government accused the other of violating their territorial waters, which, since they both claim the, the same area, means that they were probably both right in some sense. Uh, on to Africa and Sudan, where the Sudanese military apparently attacked an international committee of the Red Cross convoy in Khartoum on Sunday, killing at least two people and wounding another seven. According to the ICRC, the convoy was attempting to evacuate vulnerable citizens from the capital. The military later acknowledged attacking the convoy, but appeared to suggest that the ICRC had triggered the attack by straying too close to a military position. Also on Sunday, the Intergovernmental Authority on Development Regional Bloc announced that it's gotten Sudanese military commander Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and Rapid Support Forces leader Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo to agree to a one-on-one -on -one meeting that's, quote, uh, and, quote, an unconditional ceasefire and resolution of the conflict through political dialogue. Uh, this could be huge news, obviously, but I think it's probably advisable to pump the brakes a little bit, at least until uh, IGAD announces an actual date and place uh, for this supposed meeting that's going to take place. Uh, also on Sunday, the Sudanese military, I guess also also on Sunday, the Sudanese military expelled 15 UAE diplomats from the country. Uh, Burhan and his supporters have regularly accused the Emirati government of backing the RSF and recently alleged that it's been supplying Dagalo's forces with advanced drones and other military hardware. In Niger, the Economic Community of West African States announced on Sunday that it will establish a three-person committee to lead negotiations with Niger's military government on a return to nominally civilian rule in that country. Presumably, this means the remaining ECOWAS member states have realized that sanctioning Niger accomplished nothing other than immiserating the Nigerian people, since the bloc said that it's prepared to ease the sanctions pending the progress of these talks. It's unclear whether the gang is similarly prepared to re-engage with the military governments in Burkina Faso and Mali. In Europe, in Ukraine, with U.S. aid seemingly stuck in congressional limbo, the Washington Post reports that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is beginning to face some serious political heat in Kyiv. And I'll read you a couple paragraphs from their piece. Kyiv Mayor Vitaly Klitschko said in a recent interview with Germany's Der Spiegel that Ukraine is turning toward authoritarianism, adding, quote, at some point we will no longer be any different from Russia, where everything depends on the whim of one man. Then Petro Poroshenko, who served as president of Ukraine before Zelensky and is now leader of the opposition in parliament, was prevented by authorities from leaving the country a week ago in what analysts view as a political slap from Zelensky's administration. Poroshenko claimed that his trip abroad, which included a trip to the United States to meet with lawmakers and other officials, was intended to lobby support for Ukraine. The Internal Intelligence Agency, the SBU, which answers to the presidential office, said Saturday that it had blocked Poroshenko's departure to prevent his trip from being used for propaganda purposes by Russia. Ukrainian and U.S. officials have also noted friction between Zelensky and his commander-in-chief, General Valery Zaluzhny. The 50-year-old Zaluzhny rarely makes public statements, and though he's never revealed any political ambitions, his popularity in Ukraine rivals Zelensky's. Um interesting stuff. Uh, moving on to the Americas in Argentina, new President Javier Malay officially took office on Sunday with a pledge to impose what he called a shock adjustment on the country's ailing economy. Malay campaign campaigned on a program of short-term pain for long-term gain involving measures like major across-the-board spending cuts and eliminating the peso in favor of the U.S. dollar. Those things would definitely cause a lot of short-term pain. Whether they'd actually generate any long-term gain is far from certain. 
In Guyana, President Irfan Ali announced on Sunday that he's agreed to bilateral negotiations with Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro over the two countries' claims over the Essequibo region. Internationally, Essequibo is regarded as part of Guyana, but Venezuela, as we've talked about in this newsletter, has a claim on the region that goes back to colonial times, and Maduro, as you know, held a referendum on the region's status last weekend that has set uh, the entire uh, area on edge. Uh, Agreeing to the negotiations is a concession by Ali, uh, who had previously maintained that the issue should be settled through international bodies, i.e. the UN, and one that he apparently made under some, let's say, gentle pressure uh, from Brazil and from a group of Caribbean island states, uh, all of whom affirmed support for Guyana's territorial claim but pushed for the talks. The negotiations will open on the island of St. Vincent on Thursday. On to Haiti, where the U.N. Security Council blacklisted four Haitian gang leaders on Friday. The only name on the U.N.'s Haiti sanctions list had previously been G9 Alliance boss Jimmy Cherizier, and there have been calls for the council to broaden that list amid Haiti's worsening gang crisis. And finally, in the United States, Akbar Shahid Ahmed at HuffPost reports on a growing consternation or reports on growing consternation within the U.S. State Department regarding the war in Gaza. And I'll read you a couple paragraphs of his piece. Uh, quote, humanitarian organizations are ringing the alarm bell more than they ever have during the conflict, end quote, in talking to the State Department, an official in the, the department said. Those aid groups are telling diplomats that they may need to wind down their operations in Gaza given the heavy fighting, which would make the situation, quote, dramatically worse, end quote, the official said, on top of shortages of food and a rampant spread of disease among the 1.9 million Gazans forced out of their homes since Israel began its offensive in retaliation for an October 7th attack by the Gaza-based group Hamas. State Department spokespeople did not respond to requests for comment for this article. A White House official told HuffPost the Tuesday meeting of top officials did not include discussion of concerns about uh, a potential spillover of the conflict into Lebanon. Uh, Another State Department official told HuffPost, this is a pivotal moment in history and we should feel angry about how Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has literally put our reputation on fire to advance his personal political agenda. The collateral effects to American security are extremely consequential, end quote. Netanyahu's security failures are widely blamed for the assault on Israel, and he is expected to resign at the end of the war. He is also facing criminal charges that could land him in jail. A third State Department official voiced frustration with recent news articles suggesting the U.S. is encouraging Israeli caution and similar public statements, arguing, quote, it just feels like patting ourselves on the back while it increasingly seems like the IDF are waging a campaign of ethnic cleansing, end quote. Uh, That's all for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And thanks to those of you who are foreign exchange subscribers, especially paid foreign exchange subscribers who make this newsletter possible. And if you haven't made that jump uh, and you're enjoying the coverage or appreciating the coverage here, uh, please do consider it. Uh, The support of subscribers is the only way that I can, can keep doing this newsletter. So any little bit helps. Thank you again. And until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye.